Oh, oh, one more thing. Yes, Just One More Thing, a podcast all about Columbo. I'm John Morris. And I'm R.J. White. This time we're talking about By Dawn's Early Light, originally broadcast October 27th, 1974, written by Howard Burke, directed by Harvey Hart, and starring Patrick McGowan, Burr Benning, Madeline Thornton Sherwood, Mark Wheeler, and of course, Peter Falk as Columbo. And every episode of the podcast, we're joined by a special guest. This time around, we are being joined by podcast host and unironic bad motherfucker, Michael Grasso. But before we bring him on, RJ, tell us a little bit about this episode. Columbo mainstay Patrick McGowan is Colonel Lyle Rumford, head of the once proud Haynes Academy, a sprawling military school whose barracks keep getting emptier and emptier in a Vietnam-weary America. When the Haynes family scion decides to turn the failing school into a co-ed junior college, Rumford turns to a time-honored solution, blowing a dude up. (laughs) After the very gruesome and very public death, Columbo is on the scene to determine whether it's a sloppy, lethal accident or just plain old cold-blooded murder. Will taps finally blow on this colonel of crime's distinguished career? Or will Columbo issue him a dishonorable discharge all the way, pocketing rolls, begging for socks, deciphering architectural drawings, and chasing school buses. Uh, Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, guys. I'm very, very happy to be on. I should say, first things first, this podcast was the inspiration for my first ever podcasting endeavor. Oh. Uh, hold my order, hold my order, terrible dresser, the WKRP in Cincinnati podcast. So, oh, good. Well, thank uh, you. My- That's great. Yeah. My co-host Rob and I owe a lot to you guys. So. Oh, okay. Uh, it, it's uh, we've. We'll put our addresses up for the residuals. All right. Yeah, we're, yeah, we're very proud because that, that is an excellent show. No, podcast. it's a good show. It's a very good show. I'm, so I'm almost thanks. caught up. Almost caught up. Oh, so fantastic. That, so that something could come from our nothing is somewhat heartening. So that's nice. Jeez. <laughs> our, all this, all this false, false modesty, all this patting on the back is going gonna, is gonna to get uh, tiresome. For, oh, it, for ain't, it, ain't, it ain't false. Believe me. RJ's great. time store thing, it's... RJ's tombstone is literally just going to be one of our negative iTunes reviews. Yeah, probably, oh, no. <laughs> probably. Of which there are many. Anyway. Yeah, there's three. Anyway. <laughs> so, um, whenever someone's on for the first time, we always ask them uh, what their kind of background is uh, with enjoying uh, Columbo. Uh, so, what's your? How did you uh, come to Columbo, as it were? Um, I'm going to be the guy who goes on the Columbo podcast and says, this is the first ever full-length Columbo episode I have watched in its entirety. Well, actually, you wouldn't be the only one, because the other ones who have done that in the past, I think uh, Chris Sims and also um, uh, our listeners <laughs> know him and love him well. Uh, Aaron Blair was also <laughs> one of the past guests who, who also took that route. So you're in, Chris... you're in esteemed company, I assure you, sir. Oh, now, let, it's, a, it's, a, it's a pantheon, if it ever were one. <laughs> I will Sims. say I am a huge Peter Falk fan, which, you know, again, can you be a Peter that Falk helps. fan without being a Columbo fan? Yeah, well, I mean, you got along with it uh, for a few years, apparently. So, yeah, it's fine. You can do it. <laughs> it's possible. Yeah. I, I want to add, by the way, that Chris Sims was so new to Columbo that he actually was watching the episode we were reviewing while we were recording. I want to well, hope I want to hope it was this, his second time through <laughs> watching it, but I don't know. I just still remember it was on. Yeah. I that sounds how, like I one of how... my old. That sounds like one of my old university like test taking nightmares. Like, oh my god, I didn't study for the test. What's yeah. going on? 
Yeah, I, I don't I know watched this episode... shop over there, but yeah, it's their other podcast, <laughs> but yeah. I watched this episode twice, actually. I really enjoyed it. I had oh, a blast. Good. Excellent. Yeah. And it, it um, is one of my, I will say at the top of the show, it's one of my favorite episodes. It's definitely in my top five, if not top three. I don't sit down with the list, but this has always been one of my very, very favorite episodes of the show, so I'm glad we're finally uh, getting to it. On the yeah, back end of the program. this long, really. Yeah, I know. Me, yeah, I, I, I'm surprised too. Yeah. I also um, want to point out this is the first Columbo episode I ever saw. Oh wow! Oh really? So everything was downhill from here. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. No, it was a great episode. I really enjoyed it. Well, I mean, the reason why I picked it up and and said, you know, hey, you guys, how many of the Magoons have you done? And uh, you said we still have By Dawn's Early Light, which is universally acclaimed as the best Magoon. Um, so I was very, uh, I was very honored that you allowed me to take the. This is the final Magoon, right? Yeah, yeah, the one, yeah, well, the, the one Magoon we haven't done. Yeah, we even went through yeah. the nineties uh, ones uh, before right. getting to this one. So yeah, yeah. No, I'm very, very excited, and and I'm a huge Patrick Magoon fan as well. And obviously, we can talk about him as we get into the. Oh uh, yeah, episode. well, well, we can start with that. He is amazing in this. His his yes. acting in this is incredible, and I don't know if anybody else wants to expand on that beyond me just saying he's good. <laughs> Well, there's House... some scenes that I don't go into because he he's got some amazing turns. Yeah, but I will add that he says he rewrote a lot of this script himself. Oh, really? I can see that. Yeah, yeah. There uh, are some the... definitely McGoohan-esque turns of phrase uh, in some mm-hmm. of uh, some of his little soliloquies. Um, how about that first sequence? How sweaty is he in that first <laughs> sequence? Oh, yeah, it's, it's great. It's, there's a lot of it's either method acting or somebody off camera with a little squirt gun. Like he's. He's showing every single bit of his uh, sort of. I, I feel like his sanity is starting to crumble as he considers, you know, <laughs> committing this act. You well, know? I mean, plus he's um, working with uh, gunpowder and C4 explosives, so I think that probably yeah. <laughs> would that might that might uh, play into it a little bit as well. That's true. Uh, yeah, that's true. I hadn't thought about this because, of course, they're not filming this one in California, mm-hmm. or at least oh, most of it's film? not in California. It's the Citadel, the, the Citadel in South Carolina. Oh, yeah. really? They did? Oh, my God. Yeah, so I'm not <laughs> sure wow. if that was legit sweat or if that was spray bottle sweat. Yeah. Wow. No. There either some... way, narratively, it works beautifully. So There are some camera setups that look like they're a back lot in L.A., but it's just because of the palm trees, and I think some of them are like palmettos. So oh, like, yeah, it, yeah. I, had no, I, I had no clue. Wow, that's, that's weird because... There aren't many uh, Columbo episodes where they go that far afield because, you know, it was just a grind-on-TV show thing. They mm-hmm. go to Mexico or on a cruise ship, but not, like, actually... Because, I mean, <laughs> they've got everything around Los Angeles. They could possibly... Every single sure. sort of locale and everything. Wow, I, I'm I'm genuinely shocked they went across the country to shoot this one. Yeah. Yeah, I, I can't think of another one that takes place where they film it in a different city in the U.S. Right. They, of course, go to Mexico... Right. Uh, they're on the waters. They've been to England. Mm-hmm. Oh, right. Yep. Yeah. Wow. Well, I mean, wow. what what they needed <laughs> was something that could double as a gigantic, you know, military academy. And I guess if you're going to choose a military academy, you get, you know, choose choose one of the biggest uh, and most famous in in the United States, I guess. Which which then I think uh, in the eighties or nineties end up having this exact same issue. Plot. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Which yeah. is interesting. That that I guess that's the thing that's throwing me. It's was filmed there, but then that happened to that exact location, very yeah, publicly yeah. on a national level. I mean, yeah, wow, oh, that's that's really interesting. And I wonder if, like, as they were filming there, like the, the guys were in the place, were like, well, at least we have to worry about that here. <laughs> I hope uh, ever. Yeah, right. <laughs> and then it did. It remember. is. 
it is strange to me that they went all the way to South Carolina because there are military academies. The one thing the Citadel has that the military academies around LA don't is anyone older than 18. Mm. Cause okay. there's, there's two, there's two high school or seven to 12. And then there's one military academy K to eight. Oh my God. That would have been, been, been a weird show. The kids yeah, making yeah. cider. So Seven-year-olds making cider to get drunk off of. <laughs> that would have been strange. But uh, isn't there's a famous one in San Francisco, too, isn't there? Uh, Presidio? Yeah, I guess not well, really. That was actually a military, ba- was actually yeah. military base. base. Yeah. yeah, they could have faked it. But yeah, I guess the, the number of extras you would have to hire to be yeah. a military group. And then they'd all have to be really fit and no military drilling. So right. probably the Citadel was their best bet. Yeah. I did see some IMDB wags saying that the, uh, or maybe somewhere on the internet saying that the, well, you know, the close order drill really, really wasn't done that well. And oh, I was thinking whatever. to myself, who cares? <laughs> yeah, the IMDB trivia is like, uh, you go to the goofs section on IMDB <laughs> and it's all just like military wonks and d- bitching about the formation. And so, well, it's, it's probably the exact same thing with the, uh, the uh, little Arthur Carlson military school episode of KRP. I'm sure you guys <laughs> caught all sorts of flack for that. Seriously. Like I, this is the second military Academy related 1970s TV episode I've had to deal with. I guess, well, th- th- that's part of the episode plot, isn't it? Like these, these kind of institutions are starting to decline in the 1970s because of Vietnam, because right. of culture changing and, and because parents don't want to send their kids off to be, you know, whipped into shape by, you know, you know, military martinets, you know, um, and, uh, you know, it's it's a changing times kind of episode. And I, and I gather those were pretty common on Columbo in the 70s. A lot of, you know, Columbo having culture clashes with people of different generations and different kinds of lifestyles. I mean, here it's kind of the opposite because you've got the straight laced, you know, colonel and the schlubby Columbo. And it's a great contrast the entire episode. Right, but then it comes together in that one scene. Ah, well, yeah, we always talk about stuff out of order. And the scene <laughs> in um, Rumford's office uh, with the cigar and everything. Yeah. Or that's that mm. to me is like the best scene in the entire episode. I'm going to go guys... right to that one because that is your top scene right there. Yeah, why not? We'll start at the top and then we'll peter off. <laughs> <laughs> why not? Well, there's a million things to talk about and a lot of little, um, oh, yeah. little acting directions that I think. It must have passed under everybody's radar because I know I'm on like I must be on viewing eleven or twelve of this episode, and I'm still oh, noticing your stuff. Or just recently for this thing, I watched it. I watched it twice for this, and then oh, okay. of course once to grab the screen caps. But yeah, I've just I, whenever I really want to watch a nice Columbo, I come back to this one. Oh yeah, no, yeah. I've seen like over my entire life, I've seen it many times, but just for this mm-hmm. particular podcast, I've seen it. I just watched it twice for that. So yeah, yeah. but yeah, we have uh, so Patrick McGowan spends most of the episode. As a very hard, uh, I would say very like angry, but fairly controlled kind of angry, mm. uh, except for the thing where he decides to murder somebody with a cannon. Right. In front <laughs> uh, of a very large crowd. Yes. <laughs> and uh, we, we end up in the scene where it all breaks down a little bit. Yeah. And it's, I, it might be the best scene in Columbo. It's almost, it almost brings tears to your eyes. Where, yeah. I mean, yes, it's a whole thing where he's talking about, about um, how, you know, if he didn't have wars, nations doing things, he would hang up his uniform and he'd uh, work on his white roses that he's got out in the back of his house. And uh, to Columbo, you know, uh, when people stop abusing each other, Columbo will have to hang up his uniform, which he concedes Columbo's uniform is the 
filthy trench coat right. and everything else. It's harder. It's, it's harder so to be a slob. Yes. Yeah. That's what he says, which he, he doesn't comes, elucidate on. He, he yeah. comes so close to confessing in that scene. He seems like he really, mm-hmm. really wants to confess. And and Falk's reactions throughout that scene early because he's realizing you can see Columbo's realizing it too. Mm-hmm. That the guy is essentially confessing to the murder right there, right, and trying to connect like with a, him in some way. It's there's a dozen things in that episode I would love to talk about, and one of them is how Columbo almost, maybe for the only actually I was thinking about this. There's only two times in the entire run of Columbo I can think of where for the briefest second he's about to become human. He's not going to fabricate a story about his nieces and nephews. <laughs> he's not going to flatter the guy. It's right before the phone rings and Falk just as just like McGowan has been softening and kind of floundering and he even like throws his arms around the desk yeah. and he hands Columbo a cigar. He's looking at him with pleading eyes. Yeah, he, he's really fallen down. And there's a moment where Columbo just begins to fall down and then the phone rings and that's the end of it. Yeah. Yeah. He leaves. yeah. And I can you only were, think of sorry. I can only think of one other episode where that happened. And that was the Faye Dunaway episode in the 90s mm. where Columbo actually starts to melt a little bit. But we also know at the end of that one he turns he, – he at least pretends it was all an act. We had a long conversation about that when we reviewed it. Yeah, I mean you, you talk about McGowan playing this character so tightly wound and restrained. Mm. And I mean you gotta, you've got to consider sort of McGowan's own sort of like personal philosophy about authority and power and like mm. you know, oh, right. all the ways that he kind of explained that in The Prisoner. I mean – here he is, he's playing number two, essentially. Like, he, he's playing one of these, you know, faceless, nameless authority figures that he was railing against in The Prisoner, and he knocks it out of the park. I mean, he just, you know, and, and, and it, it's almost like this this role and all of this, again, pent-up frustration and rage is like, it's almost like it's the complementary side to what he was trying to say about, like, human freedom and, and, and authority in The Prisoner. Well, I think there's a lot of fear. That's fantastic. There's a lot of fear in it, too, because... yeah. Once um, they turn the school into something else, he's they're not going to keep him on. So he's mm-hmm. lost this job, which, what is he going to go do after this? He's lost his whole purpose, his entire adult life, which has been to train people for the military, to train people for war, to train people. Mm-hmm. And once that's gone, he's got nothing except for mm-hmm. those white roses in the back of his house. And he's just scared to death of losing all of that, too. There, there was a touch in the uh, opening scene that we were talking about a little while ago with the C4 and the uh, the mortar round. Um, you know, he puts, he takes all the precautions to make sure he doesn't leave any evidence. He's got the gloves. He's got, you know, he's dressed kind of plainly, but he puts on his military cap at the end. Yes, and, and that just seems yeah. so weird to me. I, I know, you know, I know the structure of a Columbo episode. I know we're going to see the setup for a murder. And he's doing all this stuff to minimize his visibility and his evidence, but he he still wears that hat. Like this is a, this is part of his duty to go and blow this guy up, you know. Well, actually, you know what? So having seen this uh, several times uh, over the course of my forty odd years on this earth, you know, of course, seeing it again, <laughs> I knew who he was, what was coming. Someone who had never seen it before. Mm. What did you think was going on? Who did you, did you think this guy was? Who's working with some giant artillery shell in his kitchen? <laughs> And then puts on, like, a, the sa- you know, the saddest an army jacket. ever, by the way. Yeah, puts on yeah. an army jacket, puts on, like, a military cap. Where did you think it was going, and what did you think this guy was, having never seen well, it before? 
the first thing I thought, especially with the glasses and the way he I mean, they aged him in this episode, too. I mean, mm-hmm. he looks much older than he would have been in 74. But like yeah, he's got the uh, painted on liver spots on his forehead. Yeah. The first yeah. thing I thought of, though, was the Unabomber because he's got those glasses. And, you right. know, okay. I thought about the, the sketch from the 90s when the uh, you know Unabomber was uh, was uh, on, uh, you know, out there uh, uh, sending bombs to people. But like, yeah, like the sweat um the nervousness the, the 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 sort of tightly wound nature like you know uh, terrorist you think it's the 70s you think terrorist right oh, okay you think i was somebody... wondering about that yeah yeah okay because <laughs> that's a yeah, first time bomber. A on and 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 all of a sudden he's a military man so it's an interesting little dichotomy there and also something else yeah. about that scene i I never noticed watching this before i don't know why uh, i guess because i was watching it like a couple times with actual headphones on so i was paying more attention to the sound the audio uh the fact that there is no a uh, real score or soundtrack uh, for the oh, episode, yeah. as far as I can tell, and especially that first scene, it's just the sound of him doing this, which makes it even yeah. more kind of disturbing and a little bit mm-hmm. more creepy. And then throughout the rest of the episode, the only music you get is military music that's playing off in the distance, some sort of students at the academy playing it outside, or they're yeah. on the parade grounds. So you're hearing it played, and that's the only time getting music. So it's this very uh, classic. Uh, Marshall stuff that's being played by some kids somewhere, but otherwise there is no sort of yeah. orchestral stuff heightening it. Just it's all there, which I'm trying all to diegetic. think. Of, yeah, exactly. I'm trying to think if there's other Columbo episodes where they've tried that, and I'm not off the top of my head. I don't know. I'm sure people who listen to it can correct that in the comments. But this one, I thought that was a strange, different thing, and I thought it worked so well for this. Yeah, mm. you know, the, getting back to him putting the bomb together, we do have that slow kind of bumpy pan through his house and it's impossible not to notice how bland and relatively undecorated it is Mm -hmm. when they when they go into the kitchen and this is something i only saw maybe fourth or fifth time but you know he has that big speech about when when there's no more need for him he'll just go tend his white roses there's no white roses behind the house. We get a shot of the back of the of the place, and there's a hedge, but no white roses. He might have a house off, off campus. I don't know. And there's some red ones out front. Nothing glorious. Nothing, like, really worth tending. And there's one green potted plant in the kitchen above the sink. And it's in this spot that gets clearly no sunlight. There's a fluorescent light above it. And it is this sad and tragic light. And in with regards to him thinking about going into garden when he's done with his work, like, is that his one concession to his emotional life? He's got his military responsibilities and he has this one sad little green plant. Well, actually it related to that, with the, the emotional uh, responsibilities and things. Um, when Columbo is, he suspects him clearly. And he's like, Oh, mm. a target might've been you. And I said, well, it could be jealousy over a woman. And right away, McGowan's like, no, yeah. no, that's not possible. It couldn't be possible because yeah. he has nothing else in his life except for this. That's right. it. Nothing else, and, which is why other, he kills the, for it. Yeah. I mean, the other thing I noticed about that opening scene, I'm sorry to keep going back to it, but it is oh, really fine. striking. The fact yeah. that we're oh, talking yeah. about it means it, it must have really you know, hit us all on some level. But 
it's also kind of weirdly sexual. I mean, he's mm. he's kind of like you know the way he's handling the the round and and the care he's taking with it, and again all that sweat. It's 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 there's a there's a real kind of weird psychosexual thing going on there. And you're right, like he seems very he seems quite neutered, but he's in this position of authority over all these young men. It, it's it's a he he's got a lot of this guy's got a lot of of, of like skeletons in his closet and ghosts. I can I can tell mm. definitely. Well, I was trying to figure he, out, like, exactly, like, uh, given the uh, apparent visual age of this character, that and, and when this took place, he probably is someone who served in World War II and probably Korea, mm-hmm. and then left the service, and then got this position here at this academy, and was there all throughout, you know, the Vietnam War, which must right. have been kind of strange and and weird to see that unfold around him and then see the... Uh, enrollment go down and go down and go down as that got worse and people saw yeah I no it's, it's, really yeah, yeah. So, I mean there's a lot it, it, ah jeez the yeah McGoon's just amazing <laughs> McGoon's just amazing in this. just just yeah. playing all of that I I assume playing all of it maybe I'm reading too much into it but it all would fit for the way he does yeah. this guy yeah and, and again to talk about the... McGoon's own history I mean like again he's he's got to he's got to be dealing with his own history with like authority figures at schools and you know in workplaces like. You know, he's he's kind of putting all of these traits, the again, that sort of like, you know, restrained anality and, and the and the sort of like literalness. And and again, anybody who's given power over somebody else, you know, and exercises it in the, you know, really arbitrary, cold and mean fashion that uh, Colonel Rumford does. I mean, he's you know, this guy's got some issues and, and they're, they're 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 not all related to him wanting to keep his job. I think a lot of them. I think a lot of them probably have to do with a, a much deeper set of, uh, you know, again, psychological stuff. You know, going back to the the scene in the office, I, I lost like five things because there's uh, what I was thinking about because so much happens in this episode. But going back to the scene in the office when he breaks down, there's a really interesting word he uses to describe murder, which I think we touched on briefly, which is he says when uh, Columbo can retire, when men stop abusing other men. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Which is a spect- not just a really beautiful and poetic way to describe murder, but must reflect what's going on in Rumsford's mind about what he has done. Mm-hmm. That this was not just about taking a life or saving the academy, but what he did was really a disservice. Whatever he thinks about it, he took something from someone else uh, without, their, without their concession, without their agreement, mm-hmm. without their consent. Uh, <laughs> I'm about yeah. to flip out on this. Yeah, scene. no, it's, it's good. It's a great. It's a great scene. <laughs> yeah. Um, Which actually, I was thinking a lot about why he breaks down and why he phrases it that way. And obviously, mm. there's a lot of guilt and fear in him. But I was trying to decipher what the guilt was doing to him, because I don't think he was scared of losing. I don't think at that point he was thinking about losing the academy. I don't think he was thinking about going to. Definitely not thinking about going to jail. I don't think he cared or being caught or going to trial, I I have a feeling just from the content of the character that he was finding himself in a situation where he had to really rethink who he was and what he stood for, Mm. that the guilt was beating him that way. And that's where he goes into his fantasy about working in a garden and raising roses because he has to have something else because he just kind of, of ruined being a disciplined military man. Right, because uh, like, I was just going to say, yeah. Because uh, leading up to the actual murder itself, he seems fine and relaxed and has no problem with it. 
The, the, the mm-hmm. Boodle Boy brings him coffee in the morning. He's fine. Yeah. Upbraiding him for his uh, messy shoes. Uh, the <laughs> fight uh, in the office with Haynes. You know, he's he's calculating enough to go to the guy and to like, well, no, mm. I'm going to light the cannon. And opening the doors, the secretary hears it to establish that argument and everything like yeah. that. I mean, he's, he's very calculating every step of the way. It's not until it actually happens and he's possibly going to be exposed for it. And that's when he just starts coming apart at the seams. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just a little piece of trivia. Do you know where that Boodle Boy ended up? Uh, what he ended up doing? Uh, what he's most famous for today? No, I don't. Uh, <laughs> he he is the uh, voice and narrator of the long running um, series Ancient Aliens. So whenever you <laughs> hear somebody saying some Lord. ancient astronaut theorists believe oh that's gosh. the Boodle Boy. Oh, yeah. great, great. He's not no, the only guy who in this episode who went on to do bigger and better things, though. Hit us, Michael. What has he got? Well, no, yeah, I, can, I, got I little... can tell you. I can tell you a huge one. Uh, Howard Burke uh, went on from this uh, to write uh, Mrs. Couple Mrs. Colombo episodes, including yeah, caviar, that's... including caviar with everything, which we talked about. That's what I want to hear. That's what, what I want to hear. <laughs> but what about, to say, what, about, uh, what about little Bruce Kirby Jr.? Oh right, uh, he let's never talk about the, Let's so talk about, about the Kirby's. <laughs> let's talk about. <laughs> We got we got tons of Kirby's. I was so pleased to find out that uh, the sergeant is uh, Bruce Kirby Senior. That well, was great. Well, yeah, and who who is a uh, um, uh, recurring character on the show? Right. Um, so it's always good to well, see him show up, Sergeant Kramer. But then, yeah, to see uh, Bruno Kirby, one of his very first roles, yeah. like walking past his dad in one scene, it was like, oh, that's nice. That's neat. Little little, yeah. little little traditional Hollywood nepotism for you there, um, <laughs> but. Um, I mean, this was the same year he was Cle- young Clemenza in Godfather 2, right? 74. So mm-hmm. he was, I mean, that was his big breakout Oh, oh yeah. my God. Yeah, he'd right. been on a, he was on the pilot of MASH, too. He was? Oh, that's right, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he was? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. I mean, he, you know, he, uh, he can do no wrong for me. The one time I saw his uh, deleted scene in This Is Spinal Tap, uh, where he sings Frank Sinatra in his underwear while he got after he got high yeah. with the band. Like right. I'm a I, after that I was a committed Bruno Kirby fan for the rest of my life. <laughs> I've always I've always really loved him and I was it's so exciting to see him in this and he doesn't have a lot to do but he's no. still really capable of of uh, what what do they call that when you inhabit a role? Yeah, and he did a fantastic job. Uh, I've mentioned before that one of the the things that I look for in a Columbo episode that dictates whether it's a you know whether it stands out as a good one is a an evolving relationship between the killer and Columbo. In this one, there's an evolving relationship between Columbo and uh, and Cadet. What was he? Cadet uh, Springer. Springer. Cadet. No, Springer was the other guy. Oh yeah, Morgan. yeah. It was Cadet Morgan, Morgan. Right. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. uh, you know he's. He's very formal and he's very accommodating at first, and then he gets slightly more annoyed. He picks up that Bruce Kirby Senior annoyance well, with Columbo. Yes, that's what I was going to say. It is the way his dad <laughs> has always played uh, Kramer. Well, except for mm-hmm. Wesley to the Commodore, but yeah, he plays him the exact same way. Where he's like, "Oh God, this guy." I mean, even this episode, um, Kramer, like one of the other cops, asks him, "Like, Wait, what, what is he doing over there? Where, where, where's Columbo?" He's like, eh, "What do I know? He just disappears. I don't know where he is." It's like he's just annoyed with the guy. It's like, ah, he just goes around looking for stuff, crawling around in the grass. Isn't this... So, I, I will this say... Bruce Kirby? Hmm? As Sergeant Kramer? What? Is this I'll, I'll look one? it up. You talk. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look around for this. You guys talk. I'll be right back. Oh, okay. 
I, I will say again, being that this is the first episode I've watched start to finish, I really wanted to watch Peter Falk and like watch how he inhabits the role, like we were just talking about. And the scene where he's collecting the evidence on the big wide lawn after the exploded cannon is just like, I mean, he does so much with so little. I mean, he's almost like a mime. Like his mm-hmm. his physical a- acting. Is just, I mean, I, again, like I'm so used to him, kind of like having the witty rejoinder and like you know, but but like he can do so much without any dialogue uh, is really fantastic. Also, when he's getting woken up, you know, um, uh, by the cadets, <laughs> like eating the god. Oh, that I thought you were talking when he wakes up in the middle of eating the goddamn pocket rolls. Oh, he looks like a monster. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like a rat. He's well, he, yeah, pretty much. I was, I was reminded of Private Pile in Full Metal Jacket with the jelly donuts in his Footlocker. You know, it's like. <laughs> Is that our dinner roll in your pocket, Lieutenant Columbo? <laughs> Which, that's a nice setup, too, because you see him actually steal them earlier when he's in the mess hall. <laughs> so then they come back, which is a nice like, nice continuity thing, I thought. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a good bit of... There's actually a lot of really good little character business that Columbo has going. Um, it's after the, the role heating scene when he's in the, the restroom or the bathroom with um, Kirby, with cat uh, with Private Morgan. And after Morgan leaves, he looks up. He just sees the dust, the huge amount of dust, by the way, on the, on the sink, and then stares up at the vents. And he's just yeah. calculating why that would be, be happening. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's perfect. It doesn't really add much to the episode. We know he needs to find the cider. But that long pause where he's just really working it out in his head is yeah. fantastic. Right. If I could, can I go back uh, for a second to the scene on the on the uh, parade grounds where he's looking for the um, uh, clues? Nope. Be, okay, sorry, forward. never mind. <laughs> go ahead. Because I mean um, that scene, the way it's directed, and so much of this episode has a lot of really great uh, visual stuff in it. But that one. There are so many shots with like really, really long distance things where somebody's way back in the background. Yeah. Guys are talking mm-hmm. to foreground. I mean, the scene where um, uh, uh, Bruno Kirby is talking to Columbo and then he leaves him. The ca- there's no cuts. The camera then just starts following him, tracks along until you get to uh, Bruce Kirby talking to the highway patrolman and the camera stops there. He keeps walking and then Columbo. Yeah. There's a whole lot of really interesting setups that there was rem- reminding me of like weird, elaborate Wes Anderson type shots where you have yeah. like, a big, mm. big, huge scene and the camera just moves to where it needs to move, stops there. And you know, the actors are off screen waiting until the camera then kind of <laughs> slides along and has to move to them to start their part of the scene after someone is walking into that to actually get you to the next set of people. And it happens several times this episode. There's whole yep. like um, mm-hmm. uh, the odd little the scene thing. in the courtyard that looks like a chessboard. Yes, like that that's was good. Yeah. Yes, amazing. That's yeah. I mean, not only did it did it you know <coughs> say oh these two men are having a chess match, but it reminded me of the checkmate episode of The Prisoner, obviously. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But like you know, Columbo looks so small. I mean, you, they use the Citadel to its greatest you know uh, ability. Like they, it's yeah, this they giant picked... edifice, and Columbo's just this little tiny guy dealing against this you know huge, faceless, again, sort of, you know, authority figure. Well, there, there's another one kind of like that, too, where he's got the blueprints, he can't figure out the outside door to that gymnasium, and yeah. the uh, the uh, cadets, they come up, they're doing the running thing, the one guy helps him, and once he's done, they just go screaming around him, and he doesn't react. He just keeps looking <laughs> at the thing, while these, like, kids are, like, 
this whole column of kids are like running past him. He's like, oh, no, 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 no. And he just kind of stands there calmly like it's not happening. Like they're just flowing around him <laughs> while he just keeps looking at it like, oh, I'm still reading this thing. Like there's so many just <laughs> odd little interesting things that just uh, put it way beyond a lot of other uh, episodes, I thought. Yeah, there's yeah. a lot of really good directing yeah. choices in it. The uh, the chess scene on the uh, on the tile floor that ha- that's the first scene between uh, McGowan and Falk after the office scene where where they mm. both almost break down yeah and it's great to see how McGowan has completely packed away all of that sensitivity mm-hmm. and he's back to being a very stern hard man and he's he's arguing with himself more than he's arguing with Columbo which mm-hmm. is, makes the chess metaphor brilliant uh, because he's telling Columbo. They will come back, and we're going to have war again, and he's very happy about it. Right. But uh, he's trying to convince himself, clearly. It's a good episode. Let's just end this. Everybody go watch uh-huh. it. Uh-huh. So <laughs> the one thing, let, let's let's talk a little bit about the odd thing that ends up being um, Rumford's downfall, which is the mm. obsession with the cider, which reminded me a lot of uh, Captain Quig in the Kane Mutiny, oh, sure. where it's like the one yeah. thing that he can't let go and can't let go and can't let go. And it ends up being the thing that just completely unravels him, which... Yeah, yeah now that I think about it, it's a very common sort of um, foible to put into the mind of a, of a military man. You know, they're they're so squared away that one little tiny thing will be their downfall. You like know, like it, he, he should be considering the fact that he murdered someone, but <laughs> he's obsessed with this minor infraction. Yeah. Well, that's the last point. thing he has control over, you know? Yep. If he can get right. control of that, he's back. Mm-hmm. And that's why at least there's a there's a, a shot that I thought I'd got in the screen caps and I did not. And I'm upset about it, but um, it's oh, after they burned the DVDs. <laughs> they're all gone. Yep. <laughs> they uh, uh, they're now the ones remaining are valuable. You don't want to play them because they'll, oh, they'll get right. scratched and they won't be mint anymore. Oh my goodness! There, what was uh, one of those things that the Circuit City had where uh, you had to actually Divix? Divix, yeah. You can only play yeah. them like five times. Oh yeah, and then they'll dissolve. Well, that's some a kind memory. Of Mission Ooh. Impossible. Thing. <laughs> anyway, anyway, uh, so you know, there's the scene where it must be three and what is it? Three in the morning, and he raids the the uh, barracks, has everybody fall out. He's looking for the cider. It takes hours, mm-hmm. and he goes back to his shitty little barracks home, his little whatever it is bungalow. And when you see, they cut to him sitting on the bed, or lying on the bed. Right, and he's he lying never, there like a dead man. He never man. got undressed. Mm-hmm. No, he's he just lying asleep. there. It looks, like, it looks like he died there. The lamp is on, but there's light coming in the window. So he's been there a long time, just lying there. I thought he which had just is fallen asleep with his uniform on, because he just kind of like, was sitting there. Oh boring, no, I don't And then just I don't passed out so. asleep. Oh, okay. I think he was just sitting there the whole time, just staring at the ceiling. It feels desperate. like desperate. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Because when he gets the call, he gets that really like arch call. Uh, you have to come to the parade grounds immediately. It's about the cider. <laughs> uh, and he just zoom. He's out, and he's clearly just been th- thinking about it the whole time. Yeah. And it becomes a. I guess it's it's his. Yeah, it's his white whale. You know, once he con- mm. if he can conquer the cider. And he's conquered everything, all his misfortunes, and he's regained his pride, and it's not going to happen. Uh, Even, we, we've, oh, sorry. No, I was just going to say, we, we, we've mentioned in passing a couple times Vietnam and the Vietnam era, but like mm. 
you know, what a great metaphor for what America is experiencing in 74, uh, you know, apart from apart from Nixon and apart from everything else. But like this idea that you can obsess on one little thing and it can basically drive you to do horrible, horrible things in return. And it's like, you know, not for nothing does does this is this entire plot framed by this idea of, you know, lost American, you know, valor and and uh and moral authority on the international stage. Well, and, and mm-hmm. uh, speaking of the, uh, using the word framed, uh, him trying to really <laughs> pin it on uh, Cadet Springer, <laughs> yeah. scaring that scaring that kid into thinking like he's going to be up for a murder rap somehow, right? Because he knows the kid's going to take off and run. Yeah, because that whole predictability thing that he also had with Haynes, like th- that's a great thing too, where Columbo um, has that personnel file and he's reading off everything. And, like, and um, Rumford's like, oh, it's Cadet Springer. Like, no, actually, it's the thing you wrote about Haynes. Like, oh, well, yeah, I guess they're both predictable. Like, he, yeah. So he <laughs> manipulated them both. Right. Which is really uh, not not the most honorable thing to do, just to kind of weasel out of something. Mm. Yeah, I wonder if, if it's in his character to have done that for a long time. Because you think he probably uh, would have already taken care of like all the uh, efforts to to change the school into a junior college. If he was that good at manipulating the guy, right, uh, but William comes, Haynes. But but he can't fight against money. That's true. You can never fight mm. against oh, yeah. money. That's it. There's that obvious lie he tells Columbo about. Uh, I'm in close contact with everyone on the board, and they. Oh, agree you wouldn't mind me checking me. that out for them, would you? And he's kind of like, oh, you know what? I'm just noticing a line I wrote down. Of Rumford's, John, which kind of goes back to your thing where uh, Columbo just kind of shutting down on the chessboard scene after he almost kind of, Mm -hmm. they were opening up to each other in the office, where in the mess hall, and Rumford tells Columbo, advising him, like, beware of an excess of compassion, Lieutenant. It seems like, yeah, he kind of does take, takes that advice, like, yeah, all right, you're right. Like, he just kind of... Well, that's it, right? I mean, I mean, how much, how much does Columbo understand Rumford? I mean, like... The one thing that we find out in this episode is that Columbo was in Korea, right? Or he was in the army at some point. He was in the army. And, yeah. Yeah. And so, like, you know, d- d- does does Rumford remind Columbo of a commanding officer he had? Does I mean, because, again, well, when you look that, at... Or the police department, too. I mean, coming up in the co- like, uh, as a cop, yeah. also, both, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's one of my favorite things about this is, you know, Columbo was army. He was regular army. Mm-hmm. Might have been drafted. And he's walking around this military academy, and everything is alien to him. He has never seen anything like this. Yeah. He said, I used to sit in a barracks with 50 other guys, you know, bunk beds, 25 of them, you know, right. 25 sets of bunk beds. Yeah. You know, you guys got rooms. That's that's pretty pretty sweet. I mean, you know, these guys are going to become officers, right? I mean, they're going to do ROTC, and they're going to become, mm-hmm. you know, future officers. But, like, yeah, Clovo's regular army. He's the kind of guy who would stuff a dinner roll from the mess hall, uh, you know, <laughs> in his pocket for later use in the in the barracks. So it's well, like, you know. Well, see, that's interesting then because I was thinking about this episode. It's not really a class one. Mm. Like, usually, get him going up against like a wealthy people, but it is somebody in a position of power. But I guess in terms of that military rank, you were just saying that now about like, oh, these kids would usually go into some sort of like a uh, if they're going to the military after this. They'd be going to offer stuff. So that actually does become a class divide between him being regular army and these guys yeah. who are being groomed right to just go up into the upper echelon, that sort of thing. Right. So I, in a way, yeah, I guess it is a class thing as well as a power thing in this. Oh, weird. I didn't even think about that. Well, there, there is the scene with the cigars, too. Why don't you try one of quality or whatever yes. he says? Yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, yeah. 
that's you know that I I my heart broke at that one. I, I was like, man, you know, you gotta understand this is one of Colombo's main like props. Like he's known for his cigars. You can't diss <laughs> his cigars. That's not fair. And, and he ends up well, not smoking it. Mm. Which which he usually doesn't when, uh, too. When a killer, there's very often a killer will offer Colombo a cigar and he never smokes them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you think he keeps a little like trophy case with all the people he's put <laughs> oh, away? Maybe, yeah. oh, cigars? No, he smokes them when they get the chair. Oh, yeah, oh sure. Lights it, nice. it from the sparks. <laughs> <laughs> Turns out he's a heartless bastard once it comes to execution day. That's it's that's my and that's my head laughing, throwing his back head back and laughing away. Fry, you bastard. Sorry. Getting back to the cigars real quick. Uh, Rumford also, uh, Columbo says something about, I didn't know you used cigars. And Rumford's reply is, one a day. And he says it in that, you know, beautiful, lilty, weird little Magooan way. Yeah. But (laughs) he, again, he sort of folds a little bit when he says one a day. He's almost proud of it. It's like, this is my one indulgence besides murder. Yes, right. (laughs) Oh, oh, another thing I wrote down uh, from that office scene, which I guess we talked about a little bit. A couple, we've spent a couple minutes on the office scene. Um, where actually, Abigail asks him if he has a first name, which doesn't yeah, happen yes. very often, too. And he said, I do, uh, but uh, my wife is about the only one who uses it. And that <laughs> drops it there. Drops yeah. it. Yeah. Which was fun. Well, Rumsford, Rumsford obviously can recognize in Columbo a lot of things he sympathizes or empathizes with. And one of them is not giving people a lot of personal information. Right. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Keep him locked up. Oh, it's so good. First, Rumsford's first name is... Lyle. 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 Yeah. 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 Okay. A good, tough army name, Lyle. Oh, yeah. I was just going to say. The, yeah. I mean, <laughs> here's the other thing. If this, if this guy is, is such a successful disciplinarian and military man, why is he the commandant of a crappy little military academy? I mean, like, what what kind of career must he have had before this? Was he the officer at the officer's club that all the other officers kind of, like, you know, snickered at behind his back? Well, and I mean, like I that mean it's of a, a, probably a big fish in a small pond kind of situation. But yeah. the pond just gets smaller and smaller and smaller to where it cannot be sustained any longer. And that's, <laughs> yeah. that's where his that's good point. big problem comes in. I assumed he was a lieutenant colonel in uh, Korea serving at a mobile army surgical hospital. <laughs> uh, 407th, oh, maybe. Sure. So he was he was between Burns and Winchester, basically. Exactly. He was like in the hidden season. He was the foil for uh, Trapper John and Hawkeye. Yeah, yeah he, he couldn't stand being in the, in the, uh, in the swamp and uh, just eventually <laughs> transferred to South Carolina. He was secretly <laughs> happy uh, when, the, when the helicopter crash happened. Oh Jesus! Uh, <laughs> That's dark. Good, good. Too I never soon. liked him anyway. <laughs> He's the one guy in the surgery who's just like, "Fuck yeah!" That's what I was waiting for. Yep. <laughs> Everybody's crying. Forty years later, it's still too yeah, soon. Yeah, to well, talk about Henry. Henry was terrible. So whatever. He was oh. awful. He was a bad officer. I'm glad he's gone. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, by the way, I mentioned, I said earlier that I thought this was Bruce Kirby's first uh, Columbo, and it's not. It's actually his fifth. Oh, but okay. I was confusing it because this cool. is the first McGowan. Oh, okay. Wow, so, just look at that. Talk about, like, starting off. I mean, the other ones are good, but Jesus, that's another thing. Like, starting off the top and then, like, oh, well, mm. live up to it. Wow. <laughs> See, that's, that's surprising to me, though, because it seems like somebody who had been working on the show for a long time and had been working on the show for a while and was and got what the heck it's all about. So it's surprising to yeah, me. Just yeah, just now. Wow. Just well, like um, the get-go. There's a, there's a story that uh, in the Columbo file, which I think 
Magoon's like the one one actual actor from the show who had a good interview with uh, with the Columbo file, like a, a really productive one, um, where he is talking about reading the script on a plane, and during a layover, Falk gets on the plane. And then walks up to him, and the first question is, what do you think of the script? And then proceeds to tell him everything he thinks is wrong with the script. So immediately he was getting, like, that main line into Falk's mind about how to do Columbo. Oh, Ooh. good. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Because given that this is the first episode, this is the beginning of their long and fruitful professional relationship and, yeah. and oh, yeah. personal relationship. Yeah. Wow. Neat. Yeah, that was a. Do we? Uh, I think we mentioned this really early on that uh, McGowan supposedly rewrote scenes. Right. Yeah, you mm. said that. Yeah. Uh, and Burke, the uh, the actual writer of it, really does not agree with that assessment. <laughs> oh, really? He says there's. He cannot. He doesn't know what McGowan thinks he rewrote. Oh, okay. <laughs> so little little heat there from oh, there uh, from Mr. Burke. It's right. very difficult to discuss Patrick McGoon without talking about his sort of legendary, uh, sort of haughty, arrogant sort of attitude. Now, again, when it comes to geniuses, I can forgive a lot of arrogance. Um, but, you know, he got into fights with, you know, folks on the set of uh, Danger Man and on The Prisoner. And, like, mm-hmm. he really – I think he ended up alienating a lot of people in Hollywood and over in England as well, um, you know, with with his sort of, you know – he he really comes to every role, you know, very intense. He's a lot like this character. I'm beginning to realize, even though, you know, McGowan has all these phil- philosophical arguments against authority and everything, he's a lot like Colonel Rumford personally. I mean, from what I've anyway read and heard about him, you know. I can see that, yeah. Well, then, yeah. but then also um, that kind of reputation, um, to a certain extent, you hear that about uh, Peter Falk working on this show, too. Mm. It's kind of the same way. So I'm sure there was some sort of a... Uh, I would guess, not sure. I would, I, I would presume there's some sort of like a kindred spiritness going on there yes. too, uh, yes, between the absolutely. two of them about like, yeah. well, I know what's best for this. Uh, you idiot, shut up. This is what we're gonna do anyway. Like, all right, it's fine, whatever. He's a star. <laughs> Go nuts. Yeah, he, he keeps threatening to leave, so we have to do what he says. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, McGowan did so well in this. Of course, he got an Emmy for it. Yes, oh, I'm sure okay. you all know. Yeah. I also uh I think this was a really good year for uh Columbo actually in the Emmys cuz Falk won one. Uh let's see. I have my list here. The NBC mystery movie was overall nominated uh for what was it? Outstanding series and deep breath, outstanding individual achievement in art direction or scenic design for a single episode of a comedy drama or limited series. Well, oh. it deserved that nomination cuz it did look good. So yes. It's yeah, the first and, annual Montgomery Burns Award for outstanding achievement <laughs> in the field of excellence. Uh, this was that's my obligatory <laughs> Simpsons reference for a sure. podcast episode. Yeah, sure, sure. I have a Harry Potter reference coming, but I don't. Uh. I I don't know enough about Harry Potter to know the name of the character I wanted to reference. I uh, wizard wizard McGee. I don't know. It was it was wizard McMagic. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was the uh, um, it was know. the the horrible woman who takes over the school. Uh, and Dolores uh, Umbridge. That's it. Thank you. Yeah, yeah I, was, I was just making some joke about that Gulfling secretary that Magoon has. Oh, right. <laughs> well, it's, it's a, another in a long line of uh, secretaries and office folks who hate Columbo, just instinctively. <laughs> There's so yeah. many of those throughout the series who just, he'll go in and there'll be somebody who has to organize, someone who has to organize a house, organize an office, and, and that person will just hate Columbo on site with no real justification. Like, all right. She got so annoyed that he asked for directions. I know! Here's a map. Like, I know. Oh, yeah, that's why you would give someone a map. 
<laughs> yes, even actually it was really pain in the ass to maps. reach over and give them money. Yeah. You got a goddamn stack of maps on your desk. People got asked for maps all the time. You're, you're the administration office of a giant school. It's like they have 50 acres. You probably get a lot of maps. Don't get so mad about the maps, lady. Fuck it up. Miss Umbridge. Yeah. Speaking of which, can I ask a can I ask a newbie question? Is that Combo's regular car that he is, yes. is driving in this? Yes, it is. Oh my god, yes. Yep, that's fantastic. What, all the way what, through, what, all the way through to the very last episode in the early two thousands. No kidding. Oh, mid, mid wow, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I believe it's a Peugeot four hundred three. Is that I was the right say, number? It's a Peugeot, I isn't it? Think yeah, so, yeah. yeah. Nineteen fifty nine, I believe. Oh, and, yeah, it, that, it, and it's uh, unofficial looking enough uh, that. Uh, uh, Schoolgirls don't believe he's a cop, even when showing a badge. <laughs> that's what happens this episode. Are you sure yeah, that that's a real badge? Him, that that <laughs> entire scene and sequence of him driving too close to the bus, asking the girls, like that, yeah, that was a weird set of sequences there. It was strange, yeah. yeah. Well, a, a disheveled man in a, in a rumpled overcoat runs up to a girl leaving a, a girl's school, and you expect something <laughs> Tell me what she looks like. Tell me what she looks like. Where can I find her? <laughs> <laughs> oh, seventies were a more loose. innocent time. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> there was nothing bad going on around Southern California in the, the early mid seventies. It's it's all happy things. Yeah. Um, did did, did the uh, cadet uh, Springer trying to run away again? That that kind of echoes the idea of going to Canada to escape the draft. Like he's that's like, oh, maybe I'll head up north, go to San Francisco. You know, like right. Well, for that matter, I guess we can take like a commanding officer shifting blame to his uh, his subordinates oh. is another good metaphor. Oh yeah, for yeah. Me. yeah. All right. That's yeah, that's really good. Okay. And yeah. also, uh, our Boodle Boy ran away to a boat uh, where all good things happen on Columbo. No, he wasn't the Boodle <laughs> Every Boy. Every good no. episode has a boat. He wasn't the Boodle Boy. Somebody else. This other uh, twerp was a Boodle Boy. Yeah. Springer. Yeah. Springer oh, was the uh, was the kind of rebellious type who doesn't like your brand of. Authority, man. Yeah, I'm sorry. Gonna make uh, apple, I'm going to make apple cider. Hang, I don't get how that works. How does how well effective is that? Hanging a big Bruno, jug of apple like cider. A, it's a really prison work? method, isn't it? You get fruit and you you know you you mash it and then you let it ferment in the toilet or whatever. In this case, it's hanging it out so it stays cool at night. I guess that I does guess. it. But like, does that work? Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't know. Night prison hooch. fermentation. I've never, I've never heard of it. Own. but how many nights do they have to hang it out? Seems like that would be know. annoying. Just get somebody's older brother to, to buy a handle of stuff. Right. <laughs> or just get, like, you know, some guy who feels really good towards military. Like, there must be some somebody working a liquor store who, like, respects right. the military enough. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. Some old, some old uh, veteran guy is like, oh, don't worry, kids. Here's some Jack. You know? <laughs> As opposed to having to do, unless it's uh, the excitement and pride of doing it on your own, I guess. I don't know. That's true. Funny. I mean, that, that that's part of it. I think I think the, the part of a rebellion in a situation like this is showing that you can rebel. You know what I mean? And but, yeah. I guess hanging hanging it in the window is kind of like a dare. It's sort of like you know, yeah, yeah, come I get us. So. You but know? I mean, if they if they can sneak out to, to see the, the the girls over to their school, they'd be able to uh, sneak in actual uh, manufactured booze made by professionals. <laughs> I would hope. Made by professionals. <laughs> Hung, hung from windows by professionals. Yeah, exactly. That's how they do it, I think, down in Lynchburg. They, it's just this, also, this giant factory of just bottles hanging in windows in Lynchburg, that's Tennessee. A, that's very little cider for so many men. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, like how many people were in on it? I mean, it's, you're never like a tiny I guess it's just three cup. guys were in on it, but yeah. <laughs> but everybody had to have known about it. It's like those three rooms right? split it some Saturday night. You, have to, you probably have split with everybody to keep everybody quiet. 
Yeah. See, like, oh, here's a tiny paper cup of it. Like, oh, that got me going. Thanks. Yeah, guys. that would have to be like 180 proof for uh, for everybody to get high <laughs> off it. It just yeah. seems like it's not worth the trouble somehow. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, but it was because it caught a murderer. That's Adrian. true. Yes, that's true. It's it's <laughs> it, it's kind of it's kind of interesting to, I mean, so again, me being new to the show, like. Watching, you know, watching how Columbo sets up. I mean, when you talk about contrasting uh, Cadet Springer and and Colonel Rumford, like Cadet Springer knows how to answer the question about the rag. He answers it quickly. He's like, "Oh yeah, mm-hmm. it's a cleaning rag." Right. And that's the, the, when when Columbo could could not see Rumford, you know, answering the question about the rag quickly. That's immediately when his suspicion kicks into high gear. And so now yeah. he's he's got another suspect. He uses the same ploy on them. And he's an innocent kid who answers the question honestly. It's, and that contrast, it, again, it gets me thinking about, again, uh, inferiors taking the blame for their superiors, uh, you know, crimes. And it's mm. it, it's just, you know, watching watching Peter – I, I got to go watch more, like, Columbo episodes now because yeah, I'm just – Yeah, you do. Yeah, I mean, I am, I am, like, totally on board at this point after watching this and seeing – you know, again, like I don't, I didn't know where it was all going until the end. And you know, when you encounter Columbo and you know you're going to see how the crime is committed in the first act, you're like, well, what am I going to bother watching for? But you watch it for Peter Falk. You watch right. it for that that process. And it was, yeah. it was I mean, again, with, with this kind of an episode with so much good in it, it, it must, you know, this is this is a you know a paragon for uh, sort of his performances, I would imagine. And, and at the end, when he does bring it together, when he does trap him in front of everybody, um. I love that uh, Rumford's reaction to him was just, you've done a very nice job. It's like yeah. this weird, very mild, complimentary thing. And mm. then just asks for a moment uh, to go order the, the uh, boys to do uh, one more thing. Yeah, well, he's, got, so he's got one other thing he says there when he's caught, which is, again, he almost breaks down one more one last time and mentions, I wanted to say something about the cloth. I almost did. Yeah, oh, right. no, yeah, I, yeah, I yeah. almost confessed to you. I almost did. Yeah. And just trying to gain like that little bit of, you see, I do have honor. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's so good. Yeah. And right. he, he deserved, he deserved to beat out Harold Gould for his single appearance on police story that year. <laughs> <laughs> the other Don't... three guys nominated, by the way, are kind of interesting because it was, it was Harold Gould, you know, the husband from Maud. Yeah. yeah. On an episode of Police Story, it was uh, Lou Ayers on an episode of Kung Fu. Oh, oh, oh well, okay. And the I think the only one we might know, Harry Morgan, uh, from his first appearance on MASH before he was Colonel Potter. Oh, he was like oh, the he was like king. His, yeah, he was kind of like yeah. a war he crazy. Sing, he was a war crazy general. Yeah, yeah, something like yeah, that. He was singing Mississippi Mud and dancing out of the mess hall. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God! Right, right. I I love it when TV shows bring somebody back who had a like. That's how um, um, uh, Lenny Briscoe on uh, Law and Order got his part. Um, uh, I'm forgetting the actor's name now because I'm horrible at remembering yeah, actors. Jerry Orbach. Uh, Jerry Orbach. Jerry Orbach. Yeah. Right. So he played like a real, like a, I guess a sleazy defense attorney in like a season two episode. And then they said, "Oh, you know, Paul Sorvino's leaving. You want to come on board as one of the detectives?" Uh, I, I love when that happens, and they just multiple cast people, and they don't even. Esa, it. Well, on that oh, same sorry. show, Esapata uh, Murkison, who uh, you know, oh, eventually God. went on to be the captain, uh-huh. she was on like four different roles on that show before they hired her on. Oh, yeah. Well, well even this, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, Bruce Kirby was on uh, many times as Sergeant Kramer, but. He was on, like, two other episodes, completely different characters. One, he was, like, a lab tech or lab cleanup guy, uh, mm-hmm. the makeup episode. And then he was a TV repairman in another episode. 
<laughs> and there's no reference to him being the same guy. It's just, it's very obvious this guy who clearly played a very, very substantial recurring other cop role. A pretty yeah. big secondary role in other episodes. Uh, but they just brought him back to play other things once in a while. And you it's for, like, yes, you forgot... that's him! That's that guy! <laughs> you yeah. forgot the, the best part of that. Uh, by the way, uh, his first appearance was as the lab attendant in Lovely But Lethal. Oh, that and his was name his was first Doug. one? Okay. That was his first one. Name was Doug. Okay. <laughs> then he played Sergeant Kramer four times. Then the TV, TV repairman. repairman. Oh, it was, huh. it was, then he, yeah. Then he played Sergeant Kramer two more times, and then he played a different sergeant. Oh right, God, that's right. Remember yeah, yeah. that he was Sergeant yes. Phil Brindle. Yeah, completely different. <laughs> do you think that? Do you think yeah. the TV viewers in the seventies like thought they were hallucinating when they would see like these actors take on? I thought that guy was the the friendly um, the foil for for Columbo. Why is he repairing TVs now? I don't yeah, understand. What's care? Yeah, probably. They weren't as obsessive as we are these days with TV. Think, yeah. Yeah, back which, then. which which one was that? Was that the one the um the TV executive one? Was that the one where he was the TV repair person? Yes, that was Make Me a Perfect Make Murder. Because I think I remember we did that episode, and I think I did have a backstory that that was Sergeant Kramer. He just right. gave it up on the force. He's so now he has, Well, he just has this electronics <laughs> repair shop, and then you know, like the second week he's there, he thought, like, oh, I don't have to deal with that idiot anymore. And then it's, he come, keeps coming in and getting stuff fixed. He's like, oh, God. <laughs> oh, I might yeah, as well go back to the force at this point. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, we, uh, we've lost something from our culture because there used to be a time we, when we – when the question, uh, who was that guy, or where have I seen that guy before, was unanswerable. Mm-hmm. And now you can be like, you go to IMDb and you look it up, and then you go look what other shows he was on. And you get this whole history. Yeah, it's like vaguely what I remember back, back then, yeah. Yeah, well, and it was just, my my dad was so good at that, though, because you would say, who is that? And he would rattle off like 10 or 15 roles the guy had had. Well, I'm trying, yeah. I, the whole thing about, um, I'm trying to think of recent shows that have actually done that and embraced that, and... Um, there was this really odd show that was on HBO back in the, I think, early mid-90s. Uh, it was called The High Life. It was done in black and white. took place in, like, Pittsburgh in the 1950s. It was this weird sitcom. And each episode, um, the, the kind of antagonist or a weird villain type would be played by the same guy. The same actor. Completely different characters. But every episode, it was the same kind of, like, tall, balding guy playing the same guy. Playing the same, like, it was him playing... Like the jerk every single time, but they didn't know him. They didn't recognize him. It was like the exact same actor they cast every single time, which was great. Yeah. Um, yeah, that reminds me of like the the one surly guy voice on The Simpsons who ends up being the guy who kind of like you know says smart Alec remarks uh, every single time. He's got the same voice, but sometimes he looks a little different. You know. Oh, um, the uh, the mustache, like. Oh, yeah. you must be hit the ladies then, I guess. Yeah, hey, boy, yeah. you. Um, <laughs> he's, been a, he's been a chauffeur, he's been a store clerk, he's been, yeah. Yes, all kinds exactly, of things, yeah. yeah. So, I remember him in the one where Homer got really obese because of that. Maybe it's all the constant sitting and snacking. <laughs> right. <laughs> so you guys have watched now all the Magoons. I mean, speaking yes. of multiple roles with the same actor, like, it, so do you agree? Do you think this is the best Magoon uh, performance anyway? Oh, far and away, yes. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, actually, no, I know, no I know about far and away. I think I have a close second, which is Identity Crisis. I like that one, but I think this is yeah. leagues above that even. Well, yeah. Michael will like this because it's kind of implied. It's a little implied in Identity Crisis that that might be the prisoner. That might yeah, be number, a little bit. number six. Oh, I love that. He, oh, says, yeah. he says be seeing you a couple of times in it. Oh, yeah. yeah. So There, yeah, there definitely were a couple one. of... 
there definitely were a couple of trademark McGowan number six smirks in this episode um, <laughs> that uh, Colonel Rumford gives. And, and at that moment, I'm like, oh, geez. And now I'm seeing through the makeup. I'm seeing through the hair dye. Like, oh, my God, it's it's totally number six. But, like, the um, the reason why I ask about that is, like, he does look so different in the, in this. And I, and I know that one of the things that they're, you know, that they're able to do with these, like, people like, like Robert Culp was a multiple murderer, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, not in real life. I mean, on Columbo. Well, um, that no, we know of. We've <laughs> spoiled it here, but yes, apparently <laughs> murdered lots of people. But, I mean, you know, they, they go and try to make those characters as different as possible so you can get somebody to have a multiple return role, um, yeah. you know, on the show. So d- does does McGowan go, undergo drastic transformations physically in the other roles that he's done on the show so, uh, identity, uh, after this? Identity Crisis, he looks a lot like just Patrick McGowan being Patrick McGowan. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, the 90s ones. Agenda uh, for Murder. Uh, does he's he have, got. Does he have the mustache in both of those or no? Yeah, I was going to say, I think in both... I think he has a mustache. No, in Ashes to Ashes, he has a goatee. Yeah, it definitely does. Yeah, it's a goatee. That's it. The goatee shape. And he has has a mustache. just a mustache and agenda. Yeah, so it's Mm. facial hair. The weird (laughs) thing is, the mustache and the goatee look more fake. Uh, Like, they look like they were put on to make him look old, even though he was the age that Colonel Rumsford would have been in this episode. Right. Right, yeah. (laughs) And he looks more convincing here. Yeah. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah. Well, yeah, if we're bringing it into like uh, certain rate things, certain rate McGowan performances, let's uh, let, let's pull it around and get final thoughts. Oh, we, are we? Wow, we're done already. Well, okay, yeah. I mean, we don't have to be. I think we've covered I have, a lot. Of I just stuff. have one. What? Sure. One thing. Just one more thing. Yeah. Just one more thing. Never coming back. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Was well, just something that I, I noticed, uh, and I was going to write about it on the Tumblr, but I thought I'd go and bring it up here. Uh, human contact is it tells a, a story in this episode in a way I don't think I've ever seen in Columbo before. Hmm. Not, not, uh, even, not even with Robert Vaughn, unless there's the comic. Well, that I was, <laughs> was I really wanted to touching? bring that up. Yeah. Because uh, there's the scene where, because we always have to have Columbo at a funeral, and he goes into the memorial service, which is, by the way, being held like an hour after the guy dies. But uh, he goes into the church, into the or into the chapel. Chapel, yeah. And he walks up so close to McGowan that he is shoulder to shoulder and his chin is on McGowan's chest. Yeah. It's the closest I've ever seen him get. But then touch becomes a thing throughout the episode when McGowan is patting his boodle boy on the shoulder. Oh, yeah. And the kid flinches because he's expecting to get smacked. Well, mm. and, 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 um, and yeah, Colombo brings it up like, oh, I thought you were going like, to hit him or something or beat him or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. But there's uh, with all that in mind, there's the end of the the sequence where uh, he and Columbo are eating together in the in the mess hall, and he does this incredibly awkward hand on the back of the shoulder when he's talking to Columbo, mm. and it's it's a power play. It's yeah. it's him trying to like this is me being over you, this is me like conquering you, and it's it's just unbelievably awkward. But for the rest of the episode, you look at how. And I know this is a military thing where personal space is heavily regulated and regimented because you are following orders and part of those orders is the amount of space you're taking up and where you are and specifically where you are in relation to other people. Yeah, that, um, that even comes out explicitly in the close order drill that we see up close. Right. You know? Yeah. Uh, I think there's another there's another one that popped up and I really can't remember it. Oh, you know, even uh, on the scene in the boat, Miller and his girlfriend don't touch. Mm. 
he's sitting real relaxed. He's like more relaxed than any other cadet in the entire uh, in the entire place. But yeah, they're not they're not making any contact whatsoever. It's really weird. Yeah, in a lot of one ways. thing I noticed about that chapel scene is that the first half of that discussion, you don't see either actor's face. They're literally right. just shot from 180 degrees behind, and so you can only hear their voices and see a little bit of the body language from behind like that. And then they slowly turn to profile, and it, it was actually it was one of those things that I noticed. It, this this direction is so quirky in a lot of ways. Like you were saying, Wes Anderson earlier. I mean, the use of space and negative space and all that other stuff is is really fascinating, and and it makes it, it leaves a memory. It, it it makes it a really memorable episode. Well, and uh, the directing wise, uh, Harvey Hart did three other episodes uh now you see him which is a really good one forgotten lady yeah. which is amazing basically uh, state of mind which it's not my favorite but it has some really weird messed up crazy visuals in it um and this was so he's he did like four or four like awfully good like directing wise episodes mm. through the 70s yeah or very memorable ones at the very least yeah yeah i uh, <laughs> i was distracted looking at screen caps of everybody's outfits trying to decide how wes anderson they are and boy they're really wes anderson <laughs> the uh the secretary you know she's wearing some kind of pink striped outfit with little black rectangles all over it and a and a golden butterfly pin i'll put it up on the tumbler yeah it looks it just really looks like she really did come from wes anderson casting <laughs> Oh, and weird. we all know Wes Anderson loves people in uniforms like uh, mm-hmm. like aquatic yeah. and then you know jogging uh you know mm-hmm. outfits like Royal Tenenbaums and mm-hmm. yeah yeah there's a lot of that here definitely Bat- you, the cider is also very Wes Andersony isn't it sort of like you can picture Alec Baldwin doing the narration saying every night they put the cider in the window <laughs> <laughs> yeah well i mean and also be, if there's like this tiny thing off in the distance but like the camera just way yeah. way back from it yeah in a grid of the, in a grid of little windows, and just one has. I'm looking that kind at of how backwards. they uh, looking at how they frame all the scenes of Rumsford at his desk, and that's the giant very desk resi- in the very corner of the room. It's in the corner, yeah, yeah. <laughs> with almost nothing on it. Yeah. Yep. yeah, I'm looking at the table, which was a, a huge conversation piece between my wife and I. The table where they eat, mm-hmm. because we couldn't figure out what the jar in front of the ketchup was, and it looks like peanut butter, and for some reason. I feel like the way everything organized is organized on the table. That's fairly Wes Anderson-y. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Ketchup and peanut butter. That's what they have with their rolls. Sure. And steak. I think it was steak. And Some steak. kind of meat. Rolls and steak. Well, yeah. well the, uh, the, the poor uh, plebes are tempted to eat a square meal. The guys oh. <laughs> Yeah. 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 Columbo's utter bafflement at that is terrific. Which that seems to me like that's something that would have come up during his time in the service. He would have heard about that. I don't know. Mm. It's a tough call. I, I feel like Rumford has a lot of idiosyncratic punishments and and uh, you know things he makes people do. Like I said, I I, I find I think he was sinister before he committed the murder. I I think he's got dark secrets in his background. Definitely. I was thinking about that too. I was wondering if I I don't think this is the first man he's killed. Probably the first one he's killed, you know, by sabotage. But recreationally, yeah. <laughs> recreationally, well, not, not for work, not for work, not for work, yeah. but just. I was trying to estimate because I think you know, I read somewhere that like basically the people who do kill in war, with the exception of, of like people who train specifically to kill, like snipers and such, their 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 tolls are usually one. Mm. That they they manage to kill one person and that's usually good enough. They're like that's that's it for me, and that most people in war who when they shoot they shoot to miss. 
Oh yeah, I've heard that. Yeah, definitely. And uh, I just got wondering about what, and there's no answer to this. I don't think it's hinted at anywhere in the episode, but what Rumsford's military career in terms of actual mortality was. Mm. If he'd ever managed to kill anyone, how he killed them, how far away he was, what the what the conditions of it were. Was it one of our own? You know, there's no there's no way to answer that, but I think it's kind of important to the character and it's it's something we have to fill in just based on McGowan's performance. Yeah. I got uh I got nothing else okay. except uh except the way Bruno Kirby wears his watch. Yeah. Oh right. Well, he yeah. keeps it high up on his forearm when he's washing his hands, right? I guess I, so he doesn't would lose do that it. too if it's not water if it's not waterproof. I hadn't thought well, about that. That's a real off. good way to get on. Yeah. Yes, yeah. So I would have taken it, taken it off, put it on the sink, but that's oh, a good way to lose of, it and forget it. Maybe there's a lot of light fingers around the barracks. That's <laughs> so you don't want to leave it alone. <laughs> All right. Well, Mr. Grasso, uh, yes. this being your first episode of Columbo, uh, which, what are your overall thoughts about it? Like, what do you think of it overall? Well, like I said, I'm definitely, I'm definitely going to be checking out some other episodes at this point, and I will go back through the podcast to find the best ones and probably a couple of bad ones just so I can see what those are like. But, oh, um, uh, that case, send uh, you undercover. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, like, Oof. again, being a big Peter Falk fan and the stuff he's done, like Wings of Desire and The In-Laws, like, mm. never having seen a Columbo seems to be a bit of a crime. So I'm glad no, I, have, I have rectified that uh, this week. Uh, me? I Like I said before, it's one of my favorite episodes of Columbo. It's way, 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 way up there. Uh, I've always liked it since I saw it for the first time when I was uh, much younger than I am now. Um, it, it was actually... That's how that works. Yeah, I... Uh, <laughs> Well, I mean, it was actually when I was when I was like writing up a summary, I was like, "Oh, I'll do those wacky summary things," and I was finding it very difficult because I didn't want to goof on it too much because yeah. I couldn't find anything to goof on for the most part because it's yeah. it's not just a good Columbo, it's a, just a good episode of television. Mm. Like it's a good story. It's, it actually works as like kind of a film. It just I I think it's just great all around. The performances, the direction, uh, the story I think is great. Uh, holds up. Um, yeah, I, I just think it's a wonderful thing. If you're going to start watching this show for the first time, uh, this mm. would be a great place to start. It's yeah. got pretty much everything you'd want to see. And like you, I uh, said earlier, uh, the fact that you need the structure, like, oh, how's it going to keep the interest when you know, uh, that the killing happens? <laughs> like, how, how, how's it going to, but then, you know, it works. And this, this one is yeah. a perfect example of that, I think. So yeah, if you were ever yeah. going to try to get one of your friends or family members or, or clergy, to watch Columbo for the first time, start him off with this one. Your pastor will love it. I swear. Yeah. I guarantee it. John. Yes, sir. How would you rate this episode? I'd say the one thing you can you could possibly goof on is how Haynes uh, looks like Lee Major crossed with Joe Don Baker, but that's not much. <laughs> oh, my God. That's, you're right. He that's... does. Oh, my God. <laughs> Good Lord. That is thin gruel beyond belief. Oh, my goodness. Actually, um, I thought McGowan looked like J.T. Walsh and A Few Good Men. Oh, oh that's too, actually yeah. pretty good, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's a weird thing with the lighting in this episode. I don't know if it's just a condition of the Citadel, but sometimes he looks like he has a mustache. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Kept getting distracted by that. <laughs> uh, anyway, <laughs> uh, back back on target. Um, I I think we've said everything great about this episode, and I really can't think of a, uh, of a thing I would change or a thing that uh, – there's nothing weighing it down. Yeah. This might be my favorite Columbo. I'm giving it 10 ciders, 10 night ciders out of 10 night ciders. <laughs> hey, hey, John. Uh, 
Yeah. Can you, can you think of any sort of mythical creatures who would drink night cider? <laughs> I think the Night Goliath might drink a night cider. It's been, it's been like 20, uh, 25 uh, of our yeah. shows since the Night Goliath has made an appearance. So I wanted to bring him in there. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I gave up on trying to make it a thing. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I wish I wish I had something more to say. I'm going to write a ton about this on the Tumblr because right. I think there's a hundred things to talk about. And also I need to I'm, I have to remind myself to mock up a Wes Anderson's Columbo a uh, series of images now that we've talked about it so much. Yeah. Another thing I realized, fire, up, fire up that font. Another <laughs> thing I realized, both of them have a trademark font that they use, you know, like in the credits. There you know, go. it's true. Yeah. Fol- folio extended bold. Yeah. Oh, nice. Very nice. Yeah, actually, RJ, <laughs> despite me being a graphic designer, RJ was the guy who brought that one up. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> so thank you, RJ. Sure. Um, yeah, 10 out of 10. I got nothing else to say. This was a, a fantastic episode, and it's a great one for you to start on, Michael. And yeah. really, if anybody wants to start, this is a good place. Yeah, I agree. Definitely. All right. Well, thank you for doing our program. Um, uh, tell people where they can find your fine podcast. Sure. Well, uh, I do a podcast with my podcast partner, Rob McDougall. It's called Hold My Order, Terrible Dresser. It is the deep di- – yeah, I know, I know. No, I love the title. I love the title. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, good. That's great. Um, you can find out what it means in, in a couple of our episodes, but it is the Deep Dive History Nerd WKRP in Cincinnati podcast where we take a look each uh, episode at two episodes of WKRP in Cincinnati and use that as a kind of lens to look at American history, politics, pop culture – uh, we we range very widely. If you're not familiar with the show WKRP, you can you can pick it up pretty easily. I think. Yeah, no, it's, and, and yeah, where, where do they go for that? Oh, uh, you can go to holdmyorderterribledresser.com. dot com. Uh, that wasn't taken. It was not taken. I can't believe it, that. It's totally available. <laughs> um, Twitter is also a great way to find us. We're at holdmyorderwkrp. There. Um, we're also on Facebook. Uh, just search for Hold My Order, and you should find us. Great. Hey, John, what were you going to yeah, say before I uh, had him? Get I was just, uh, uh, how many seasons of WKRP are there? Because I know you're just wrapping up season three right now. We're wrapping up season three. So season four is the final season. The 1981-82 oh, season is coming up, and that's going to be our last season of the podcast. Oh, no, you're not going to do the uh, new WKRP in Cincinnati. Huh? I, I, I <laughs> Michael no, Desbars? Uh, no? <laughs> and Tawny Katane, yeah. yes. Right. No! Oh, my God. Right. I offer no thoughts, either pro or con, towards the new WKRP. We we kind of pretend it doesn't exist. So <laughs> if you guys did that with the 80s and 90s, Columbo, I mean, that would have been cutting off a great vein of, of, of material for the podcast. But I'm okay passing on the uh, new WKRP. Well, that I'm was like totally half a season. We would have lost like five seasons. We yeah, about. there you so, go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you can always pick up with head of the class, right? Oh God! <laughs> uh, yeah. I haven't thought about that show since it was on. Probably yeah. <laughs> no one, no one has. Even Howard has. Yeah, you and uh, you and everybody, right? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, that... guys. This was a lot, this was a lot of fun. Thank oh, you very no, much. Oh, our pleasure. We'll, Thank we'll, you. We'll have you. We'll force you to do a '90s one, probably. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah, if you really want to see a bad one, we can make that happen. Oh yeah, we maybe, got we got a whole. Should... Maybe I should taste the dizzying heights and then the uh, the <laughs> horrible lows of, of Columbo. Maybe exactly. That's what It'll make I'm you appreciate thinking. this one all the more. <laughs> all right. Well, that's the show for this right. time around. If you want to listen to other episodes of Just One More Thing, uh, you can go to our website, jmtpodcast.com, or search for us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Music, whichever you want to do. And if you've been listening to the show, if you want to leave us a review on any of those, especially iTunes, that'd be fine, too. We wouldn't mind it. It helps us there in the rankings on those uh, different services. Uh, as John mentioned several times, we also have a Tumblr, jmtpodcast.tumblr.com. 
where he posts a lot of screen grabs, further thoughts on the episodes, and also uh, reposts other things that people have posted on Tumblr about Columbo. They do, surprisingly. It's not all uh, My Little Pony fan fiction. Mm. Or it's weird, not even, or weird ads, or weird ads, or weird ads for cubes that have buttons on them that for people to get bored and gotta. <laughs> I don't know what the heck that, that that's been on there for like weeks. Tumblr, come on, <laughs> you better advertisers. Anyway, um, Twitter, we're also on Twitter too. JMT Podcast, uh, where we post about new episodes and we monitor and look for folks mentioning it and whatnot and repost things on there. Um, what else we got? Oh, we have an email address. So if you want to write into us, <laughs> uh, we like to correspondence. For folks, just it's too many internet things. There's too much internet. That's a problem. Yeah. There's too many internet. Too many internet. I'm, darn it. Yeah. Colombo. I, I have an Elo account. I know what you mean. I <laughs> think I had one and I forgot. I don't. It's, it's, oh, you're there's... the guy. Wait, which one was Elo? <laughs> which one was Elo? Was that the one with the? Uh, it was very like that a minimalist the... thing. No frills, black and white one. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I looked at that for a week. <laughs> it's kind of like think... those generic uh, products they used to have on store shelves. Beer, you know, like. Yeah. Elo <laughs> Elo is up there uh, gathering dust with my Orchid account. Elo <laughs> is what social media would be in the world of Repo Man. Repo Man. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 <laughs> oh God, internet. Anyway, <laughs> internet. Where this thing is, I'm not sure why I'm, uh, I'm dogging the internet. Otherwise, this wouldn't exist. Ah, uh, well, that's the program for this time around. I'm R.G. White. I'm John Morris, and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks. Bye. <laughs> Oh, listen, just one more thing. Oh. We have, we have similar jobs in a way. I wear a uniform, you wear a... I suppose you could call that a uniform. Used to tell my cadets, you know, all the time. Uh, sometimes it's harder to be... a slob than to be neat and tidy and clean. It's the wars, you see, the wars. Going nations. When that stops... Hang up the uniform. I'll hang up my uniform. I'll go and take care of my backyard. I got, I got some roses. White roses. And I suppose that when people stop abusing each other, you'll hang up your uniform too.